This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we are looking at the life, teachings, and works of Jesus Christ from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put together in one chronological flow. Ben, last time we looked at Jesus' bold interaction really in some impossible situations, a couple of people who were paralyzed, one with a group of friends, one who was alone, and how he interacted with them. And today we're going to shift gears a little bit and and look at Jesus, his declaration of who he is, a little bit more about his identity that we'll continue to see throughout this study, as well as, you know, when, when he drew a yellow card from the officials of the, the, the Pharisees for his Sabbath rule violations. Did you ever get a yellow? Did you play soccer? I did. I did play soccer. How many? You get some yellow cards, did you, my friend? Yes, uh, I received a couple of yellow cards, a few red cards. Okay, uh, here red and there. cards even. That's that's worse, right? I'm not much on soccer. My nephew loves it. Yeah. Yeah. Red card is like uh, you're out of the game. Go get a shower. Pretty much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll refrain from sharing how I got those red cards, but. I did acquire a few back in the day. Okay, fair enough. So Jesus, I guess he he gets a yellow card. We'll talk about that here a little bit, a little bit later. Let's start off in the Gospel of John, and we're we're going to look at chapter five a little bit, and it actually does begin with a bit about the Sabbath and what's going on there at this. This event, remember what had just taken place. I guess you shouldn't say remember, but if you look at the first several verses, first 15 verses of John chapter 5 is the healing story of the man by the pool. And then verse 16 says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, how dare he? He was healing people on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders began to persecute him. I'm just going to stop there for a moment, and let's talk a bit more about why this was such a big deal that Jesus picked the wrong day of the week to heal somebody, and it was so upsetting that the officials pulled a yellow card. They, they said, foul, violation, blew their whistle. Jesus, you can't be doing this. In fact, they didn't simply want to write his name on the card. They wanted to persecute him. What's, what's the deal with the Sabbath that would cause them to do this? The, the Pharisees wanting to be faithful to the law and the, uh, keeping the Sabbath day holy as a part of the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, but the Pharisees, rather than understand the Sabbath as a gift from God to his people, they looked at the Sabbath more as a litmus test uh, toward faithfulness. Um, which was one of the things that they measured their own righteousness by, which led them into a a disposition of self-righteousness. And so rather than see that the Sabbath really is is more a means of God's gift to his people uh, to encourage rest as as they sought to entrust themselves uh, to the Lord, uh, the Pharisees are are looking at this. um, Again, it is a means to question the righteousness, to question the goodness of Jesus. And so that, that's the weird uh, juxtaposition here, is that Jesus is seeking to do good, to bring wholeness, to bring life to somebody. 
and all they can focus on is the fact that he is uh, is loving on people again, bringing this wholeness, bringing this life, bringing this healing to somebody, and rather than celebrate the good gift of God, they see Jesus through the lens of unfaithfulness. Yeah, but, but in fairness to them, I guess it was one of the top ten. Absolutely, it, it, it was one of the ten commandments in Exodus twenty. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On this day you should do no work. And there's some even some description given there, if I remember right. Sure. So, uh, how do we find this balancing act? Because m- I, maybe today we have le- too little regard. Sure. For absolutely. Sabbath and what it means to have Sabbath rest with God. So, what's the what's the balancing act there? I think it's the uh, the view of the Sabbath day. And in keeping it holy, we're keeping it, uh, again, um, seeing it through the lens, in my mind at least, as an aspect of God's gift to his people, encouraging rest, and not just rest, but fostering a relationship of dependence among his people. Do not work for the sake of your own income, for this, uh, but creating and nurturing a relationship of dependence um, as opposed to self-righteousness. The fact that it's breeding self-righteousness into the Pharisees to where they uh, see themselves as, uh, in some ways, uh, uniquely um, uniquely special, in, in a way, uh, to God, that they have uh, acquired his affection, earned his affection by what they perceive as a, a righteous obedience uh, to the law, which has ultimately hardened their hearts to the needs of others. The, the Sabbath day in encouraging dependence and encouraging a, a deepening relationship upon God should ultimately encourage a heart that sees others uh, with the compassionate heart of God. In the ministry world, we, we work on the Sabbath. With, in the Christian community, we, we look at the Sabbath as, that's a work day. That's a, it's the, it's the day. It's the the big work day for those who are in ministry, and if anything, we sometimes maybe err the other direction sure. and don't really take a Sabbath. We might take a day off, but often we do tasks and and jobs and duties in those days. But define what you're talking about—that sort of place of worshipful rest with the Lord. We we might go the other direction. Just I'm I'm looking at this. You know, in the in the time of Jesus and how they overreacted to him, and I wonder sometimes if, if we've the pendulum swung so far and we overreact the other way, and almost dismiss the Sabbath to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, because most of the time when we I think look at a Sabbath day, is the Sabbath day being utilized as a as a means to draw near in my relationship with God, to exercise dependence on God, to recognize that. Every good gift I have in my life, financially or otherwise, is a gift uh, from the Lord. What ends up happening most of the time on our uh, prospective Sabbath day, and I know this is something that I will fall into uh, quite often uh, because I I like to work. (laughs) Um, And so as a means, oftentimes during my Sabbath day, I find myself distracting myself uh, from the fact that I have uh, taken a day off work 
rather than actually like leaning into my relationship with God on the Sabbath day, making it uh, an act of a worshipful rest. If that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. And it's, it's, it's a, I, th- I really think it's a balancing act. It feels like to me that we've, we've got to figure out, I mean, it's not an act. It's, it's spiritual longing to be with God, but not legalistic rule keeping, which is what the Pharisees seem most interested in. But Jesus will have none of it. I'm back in John chapter five, verse 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, notice he said in his defense, mm-hmm. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, including this Sabbath day, and I too am working. That seems like a somewhat an innocuous statement, but we know that wrapped up in this, he's calling God his father. He's proclaiming that the he then is the son of the father, and they get it. In verse 18, for this reason, they, that is the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, teachers of the law and such, for this very reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there is no verse 18b that says, in his defense, Jesus, you know, he's not, he, he doesn't try to get out of this understanding that they see him as God, the Son of God, but even equal with God. Somebody's turning up the heat yeah. on Jesus' life right now, and the, the heat, I believe, is who he's proclaimed to be. In fact, if we skip down to verse 25, Jesus even says it very clearly, very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You know, a lot of times people, people say, well, Jesus was a good man, he was a prophet, he was a preacher, he was a teacher, but he didn't, it doesn't really, really say he was the Son of God or he doesn't claim to be the Son of God. Oh, no. Like right here, it's very clearly laid out. And I guess you have a choice to accept it or reject it or believe it or disbelieve it, but you can't say that Jesus wasn't clear about it. He clearly proclaims himself to be the Son of God. In fact, as this scripture moves forward down to verses 39 and 40, he speaks to those teachers of the law who loved the scripture, and he said in John 5, 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus clearly is saying that all of the scripture, and scripture at that time would have been what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, that all of the scriptures testify about him. These are some bold statements, are they not? That God is his father, that he is the son, that the scriptures testify about him. What's Jesus doing here in the midst of the controversy about doing some good things on the Sabbath, where he's turning up heat on himself? Yeah, he's, he's revealing himself for who he is. And as the, the Pharisees are, are doing battle uh, with him relative to the law, Jesus is revealing himself as God incarnate, God in the flesh. And, and the fact that they, these, these students of the law, these students of the, what we know to be 
the Old Testament, the fact that they do not realize that the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the law is pointing to Christ, uh, is a revelation that they truly do not understand the law, that they truly do not understand that which they have committed themselves to. You know, you, you've said before that you did not really grow up in Christian faith. You looked at it from a distance. When, when you first, and this is a curious question, just kind of came to me. When you first came in to the Christian faith, did you see it as a, a set of rules? Did, uh, things to do? I mean, did, did talk about that just for a minute. I'm going to put you right on the spot. Yeah, to, to some degree, prior to my faith in Christ, yeah. I mean, I saw the, the whole of Christianity basically uh, being a, a set of rules that people engaged in as a means in their own mind uh, to earn the affections of some God. At post uh, coming to faith in Christ, uh, one of the things that I, I saw was that Jesus had had died for me, and so in my desire uh, to live for Him, um, and in my struggle in my own mind to to live for Him, one of the things that I really wrestled with was I wrestled with an intense amount of guilt relative to the things that I knew I should be doing that I was not doing uh, in my life, and I struggled to really rest in the redeeming love, the redeeming grace of God, um, because I couldn't understand why God would call me his, his son, why God uh, would see me as his beloved. And so I lived for a big chunk of my you know, first few years uh, as, a, as a follower of Christ, wrestling with this sense of God must be embarrassed of me. Um, because all I could do was define myself by the law rather than defining myself by who I was through Christ. Hmm. Um, and that Jesus had ultimately fulfilled the law on my behalf, that he had rescued me from the punishment that I deserved under the law. And in, in that, I could see the law ultimately as something sweet, as ultimately a gift to live into, a gift to respond to, that it wasn't condemning me but a revelation to me of the heart that God has and the heart that I want uh, in my own life. Oh, man, I love that. That is such a beautiful story of God's redemptive work. Let's put it this way, God's love, his passionate love in pursuit of you. And really all of us, when we step outside of ourselves and just realize that God loves us, it's really incredible. I want to flip over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And these, we don't know if these events are, are really back-to-back or super close together. Again, we're doing our best to put the, the story together in a way, not worrying which event happens, but it's another Sabbath story. And there are a couple of them in, in Luke 6, verse 1, but I want to skip down to Luke 6, verse 6. When it says, on another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now that, that by itself should just say, this man has a need. He, he needs someone to love him and to befriend him, to care for him, maybe to heal him. But it's interesting that the Pharisees, these, these rule keepers, the officials, 
looked at it in a different way. It says in verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. I find this to be among the saddest verses in the Gospels. That here's this guy, he, he, he comes in for worship. He's probably used to his hand being deformed in some way. And he's just coming there to, to be with the people of God and to be with God. But all the, the religious scholars can do is to look at him as a, a trap, like bait, to catch Jesus healing the guy so that they can say, ha, you did it on the Sabbath again. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what it is about that story that I just find sadly troubling. Yeah, they're objectifying him. I mean, they're ultimately using him, to, to your point, as bait, as a means to, to trap uh, Jesus. So they don't even see the humanity uh, in this person. They just see him as an object uh, that can be uh, used and, and manipulated for their own purposes and in their own mind to expose what they perceive as the uh, unrighteousness or the disobedience of Jesus. And so Jesus said in verse 9, I ask you, he's speaking to the religious authorities, I ask you which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. I don't know if he meant it as a rhetorical question, but apparently they didn't answer it, sat in silence and watched. And so in verse 10, Jesus looked around at them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. You know, in that moment, the guy had to choose which hand to stretch out. The one that was whole, so that he could take the hand of Jesus and embrace him, and or the one that was shriveled, the scripture says, so that he might be healed. Sometimes we have a decision to make, don't we? Do we put our, our best part forward to Jesus or our worst part forward to Jesus? And maybe different situations call for different things. I, I don't know. That's just kind of an interesting parenthetical thing that I toss into there. The guy did so, it says, uh, and his hand was completely restored. And then here again is the response. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Sometimes I think we get the... Uh, the misunderstanding that everything was going well in Jesus' life until the last you know, couple of weeks, and then they rallied up the troops and they crucified him. But they were after him from the very, very beginning. What do you think that must have been like for him, but also for his disciples? There was expectation, uh, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, as we, as we dive into um, the Sermon on the Mount and the, the Sermon on the Plain, but uh, Jesus had this expectation. He knew uh, what ultimately was coming. And, uh, and so he knew the resistance that, that he would face. Uh, the disciples, I think, uh, had an inclination that they uh, would face uh, resistance to, to some uh, degree. I think they probably anticipated more from uh, Roman authorities as they perceived Jesus as kind of the conquering king or the Messiah would be this conquering king that that removed uh, this uh, foreign occupation 
uh, from the land. Uh, but Jesus anticipated it. It's one of the reasons why uh, persistently in his ministry, he is encouraging people, even as he heals them, to in some ways try to keep it quiet uh, because he's got, and it, he knows when the cross is coming. At one point in Luke, it talks about how he sets his face toward Jerusalem and basically gets on his way uh, toward that end. But that's, that's an aspect of this. He knows the, the, the constant um, persecution that he's going to face, the resistance that he's going to face, and Jesus knows ultimately where it culminates. And yet he continues to lean in to this. He doesn't ever backtrack uh, from it, um, but continues to lean into this as he ultimately has set his face toward, toward the cross. And maybe that's why, to some degree, the disciples were willing to jump in. They saw his resolve. Oh, absolutely. I don't, know, I don't think they fully knew what was coming, but they had to know some of it. I mean, yeah. the religious leaders were furious, and they were persecuting, and they were they're plotting to kill him even before he chose them to be the apostles, which is in the very next verse, yeah. by the way. In, in John, where I'm sorry, we're in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Pretty good behavior before you have a huge decision to make. And then in verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Now, wait a minute. There weren't just 12. There were a lot more than 12. He, out of that group, did you ever, you know, have these fear? You probably didn't because you were like, you're like a big, tough guy. But it, did you ever have experience, you know, like at choosing up teams and everybody's lined up and they start picking the, the fat, you were probably the fastest no, and strongest. No, Is I that wasn't. right? You were I, that I was guy. none of the above. So, you know, like everybody's getting picked off here and, you know, there's you and three other kids left and you're wondering, like, am I going to be the last one chosen? I don't know if that's what's going on here or not, but there were, there were multiple disciples, more than 12, and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. So after a night of prayer, Jesus chooses them. We've talked about this a bit already how important it was to Jesus to develop leaders, develop next-generation people. Even though one of them, it says in verse 16, was Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I, I imagine Jesus knew. Yeah. And yet he, he chose him, and it, it certainly affected the group as the group was being shaped and formed and, and trained, knowing that they would eventually be doing that with other people, third and fourth generation leaders in the Christian movement. So I just, I just think, think it's an important thing to get the, the sense that these apostles, they didn't just follow him and say, hey, this is going to be a party. Right. By the time they were named and they said yes, he was already being threatened, persecuted, mm -hmm. plots against his life, and it was, it was already heating up, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this, this is a, kind of a, a place where Jesus is gathering groups with him, gathering crowds with him. And what we're going to do next time is we're going to dig into that Sermon on the Mount. Actually, for the next you know, few episodes, we'll be digging into that and get a deeper sense of what Jesus' message is all about. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app, and click on the Life of Jesus link. That'll take you to more elements in this year-long study 
including daily gospel readings, devotions, poems, the weekly sermon, group study, and other episodes of this podcast. Until next time, we say God bless you, and we'll see you then. Thank you.